in the midst of this series, the series that we are calling We Are the Church. And what we're doing in this series is that we are looking at these distinctives of the church. That there are, there are, we're looking in this series, we're going to look at about four things, and there are more distinctives of the church, of course, but there are about four things that we are looking at in this series, things that all Christians are called to do. They're called by Christ. And so these are things that we should all do. Some of us, maybe we don't. And it's because we are called by Christ to do them, that's why we call them ordinances. Now, we have two, particularly those of us who are Baptists, we have two formalized ordinances. We have the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, and we have the ordinance of baptism, both of which we have gotten a chance to experience and celebrate over the last um, two weeks. And it's really good to see that the four people we baptized last week are all here this week. Sometimes that doesn't happen. But y'all are here. Because last week what we saw, right, is we saw four individuals make promises in front of you to God. And you made promises to support and sustain them. And we're going to talk a little bit about why we made those promises today. So we've got these two formalized ordinances. If you were to read our confession of faith, the Baptist faith and message, you would see that we confess in there that there are two ordinances, the Lord's Supper and baptism. Now some traditions and some churches have more than two. There are those that my grandfather always called the foot-washing Baptists. They have three. Can you guess what the third one is? Foot-washing. My grandfather was a very creative man. Now, there are some folks who, who talk about sacraments, and that sacraments are this, this place where we come together and we experience the grace of God in a, in a special way. We have some brothers and sisters, Protestant brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters of the Reformation, who talk about sacraments. And often they talk about the same two that we talk about as our ordinances. Roman Catholics, I think, have seven sacraments. But there are... That's a conversation for another day. This week, we're going to move into, we're going to, have, we're going to look at two more things. This week and next week, we're going to look at two things that, we, that I'm going to call informal ordinances. So these are things that are still commanded of God, but we have not recognized historically as Baptists and historically over the last 2,000 years as a church that these are of the same level, of the same need for formalization that the Lord's Supper and baptism are. One of the things that this means is that there is some Christian freedom here in how to practice these things. But there is not any question as to whether or not these things are commanded of us by Jesus Christ. They are still commanded of us. And so this week we're going to look at the first of those and we're going to look broadly at this idea of confession. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10. Go ahead and start Moving there, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10, starting with the 19th verse. Um, I encourage you to look it up. If you don't have a copy of Scripture with you, grab one of those black um, hardback pew Bibles in front of you. Um, And if you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your very own, I'd encourage you to take one of those Bibles with you as our gift to you this morning. Hebrews is in the New Testament. It's toward the end of the book, if you don't know where it is. 
We're going to be talking about confession. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word confession, a series of images comes into my mind. What comes into my mind is a small room, darkly lit with a very bright light. There's one-way glass on one wall, and there are two cops. One is playing good cop, and one is playing bad cop. There is a slight possibility that I have watched too many police procedurals in my life. That's what I think of when I think of confessing. I, th- I think of, of law and order. And Lenny Briscoe lean in on the suspect to get him to confess. And so we think about confession, and, and, and that's an image that brings to mind a very particular thing when we talk about confession in the church, which is confession of our sins. And, and there is... There is an element of that. It, confession can be described as a disclosure of one's sin or an admission or acknowledgement of sin. But there's also in the church this other side of confession, which is a declaration or profession of belief. So those three, four individuals who got baptized last week, they made a confession. They confessed that Jesus was Lord. That was a confession. I also, I mentioned just a moment ago, I mentioned our confession of faith, the Baptist faith and message. That is a confession. We can also talk about the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, two historic creeds of the church that this congregation affirms as being confessions of faith. There's a great confession of faith, the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. It was when the Baptists sort of looked over the Presbyterians' shoulders and wrote down everything that they had written down in Westminster and just changed the bits on baptism. It's a great confession. I love it, even if we stole it from the Presbyterians. These are confessions that we as a congregation make. We make the confession that we find in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and in the Baptist faith and message. These are statements of faith. So as we, as we turn to Scripture, we have to ask ourselves, what does the Bible have to say about confession? And the answer to that is the Bible has a lot to say about confession. And if I was to give you everything the Bible had to say about confession, we would be here for several days. You don't want that. I don't want that. And apparently the air conditioner doesn't want that. So we're just going to look at what it has to say in Hebrews. So we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to be starting with the 19th verse, and we're only going to be reading a couple of verses down. Will you stand with me as we read God's word together? Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he was inaugurated for us and he, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. Let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. This is the word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let us pray. 
Dear gracious Heavenly God, we pray this morning that these words from Hebrews, your word, that we would that we would come to understand them a little bit better, that we would come to live them a little bit better. God, I pray that we would see and understand Christ as our great high priest, as the inauguration of a new covenant, that whose blood purchased for us the ability to make the confession of our hope. And so, God, as we study your word, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts will be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. You may be seated. As we, as we turn here, as we turn to Hebrews, it's important to note a couple of things. Um, you know, I, I've, I've told you before that when we see certain words in the text that we should pay attention to them. But is one of those words. When we see the word but, B-U-T, we need to pay attention to it. Um, therefore is another one of those words. Therefore is one of those words that when we see it, we need to pay attention to it because what it is telling us is it's telling us that that which came before what we are about to read is important. And what we're about to read is connected to what came before it. And so right here at the beginning of verse 19, we see this word, therefore. Okay, therefore what? So we've got to think about about what has happened previously in the book of Hebrews. And what's been happening is the author has been making arguments about who exactly Jesus is. He's shown us that he is the perfect high priest and the perfect sacrifice and that his death and resurrection has established a new covenant. And he's done that by, by taking all of this Old Testament and temple imagery and showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of those images. And so there are six verses here, and these six verses are sort of a summary and a conclusion statement of this argument. It's important for us to remember, we talk about Hebrews, and some of you may even have grown up calling it the letter to the Hebrews, but if you look at it and you read it carefully, you will see that stylistically it doesn't really match the other letters that are in the New Testament. Go back and read Romans and, and what Paul, how Paul constructs Romans and then go forward and read Hebrews and you'll see that it, it doesn't feel quite the same. And our best bet is that while this probably did circulate with a cover letter, that Hebrews was originally written to be a sermon, to be a homily, to be a piece of oratory, or at least something that was written to be read in front of the congregation, not, not as sort of a personable letter, but as an argument. We have to remember, this is the time of the Greek philosophers and Roman philosophy and our argumentation and a, and a high degree of study of rhetoric. And Hebrews fits into that category. So it's, it was written to present certain arguments. And so as such, its structure is a little different. And, and so these verses we could see as sort of being the beginning of the conclusion of Hebrews. These verses are a transition from the arguments that the author has been making to the application that the author is bringing forward in the conclusion. One of the other things that's really interesting 
In your text, it probably is not this way. But in Greek, this is one single run-on sentence. I think the CSB captures that really well. The CSB only has it as about three sentences. It has a one really long run-on sentence for the first few verses. And then, and then I think, I think the, the rules of English grammar just took over the translators and they couldn't help themselves and they started adding periods and creating sentences. But if you read it, think about it. It's this, it's this one long run-on sentence. And this could have formed its own conclusion, except the author doesn't mean for it to be a conclusion. He, he or potentially she, but probably he, intends it to be a, a transition into this expansion of this conclusion and this application. And so we're here in verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. It's in light of who Jesus is and what he has done, everything that the author has been talking about, that we're able to, as the author puts, boldly enter the sanctuary. There is a reason, brothers and sisters, that most of the time when I begin that time of prayer for us on Sunday morning, I say, let us, what? boldly approach the throne of grace together or approach the throne of grace with boldness. And it comes from here. It comes from Hebrews. We're able to boldly approach God. See, what the author is doing here is he's taking that image of the tabernacle again, the same image of the original covenant, of that, of that mosaic covenant that he's used all of this time to show that Jesus is both the perfect great high priest and the perfect sacrifice, and he's leaning on it again, and he's hoping that his readers will remember something. He's hoping that his readers will remember that there is one day a year that one man is able to approach in the sanctuary. There's one day a year that one man is able to enter into the sanctuary, into the Holy of Holies. Now that day is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Our, our, our Jewish friends actually celebrated Yom Kippur this week. I don't know if celebrate is the right word. Observed Yom Kippur this week. Yom Kippur is a day of atonement. It's a day of, of fasting and confession. And so right here, before we even gotten to the word confession, the author of Hebrews is bringing to mind Yom Kippur in this day of confession. So that was the day that it was. The, the person that it was, was the high priest. We've talked about this. Actually, this has come up several times recently. But the high priest could, could, could alone enter the Holy of Holies. And there are lots of things associated with that. But, but he was to come in and he was to sprinkle blood in the first temple when they still had the Ark of the Covenant. He was to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the Ark of the Covenant. An atonement for the people's sin. In the second temple period, which is the period where the temple exists when, when Jesus is alive, you will remember the temple is destroyed by, by Babylon and then they, it's rebuilt later. We were looking at that just a couple of weeks ago with Haggai. That's the second temple. And the Ark of the Covenant is gone. It has disappeared. 
Now, if you, read, if you watch certain Steven Spielberg movies, it is in a government facility with lots and lots of other crates, but that's Indiana Jones and not the Bible. We don't know where the Ark of the Covenant is. And so in the second temple period, what they would do is they would come in and the Ark was not there for them to sprinkle the blood on, so they would sprinkle the blood on the place where the Ark should be. But even then, even when it was the man doing, doing it, the one man who could do it on the one day that he was allowed to do it, he did not approach with boldness. He, in fact, approached with much fear and trembling. We've talked before recently about this. They would tie a cord around his ankle because if he came in and was deemed unworthy to be in the holies of holies, he would be struck down. And after that, ain't nobody going in to get him out, so they're going to pull him out. That's not approaching the throne because the ark is the throne of God, right? It's not approaching the throne of God with boldness. But here's the thing that the author of Hebrews has shown us. The author of Hebrews has shown us that Jesus is the great high priest and that the veil between God and his people has been torn through his perfect sacrifice on the cross. He has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain. There was a curtain that hung between that separated the rest of the temple from the Holy of Holies. He has inaugurated a living way through the curtain, through his flesh. We also know from the Gospels that at the moment of Jesus' crucifixion and death, that there was a great earthquake and that that curtain was torn in two. Access, brothers and sisters, has been granted because of the work of the perfect sacrifice and the great high priest you and I can now enter into the presence of God, not timidly, but in boldness, because you have been purchased by the blood of Christ. So there's already this image of Yom Kippur and the Day of Atonement and Confession. And now we're told, so that we can, we can enter with boldness, we're told this, we're told, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of the faith. We have this amazing, unlimited, unveiled, unbroken access to God that allows us to draw near to Him. Everything changes when you realize that Jesus has already dealt with the things that you should be ashamed to discuss. See, that was the thing, right? The great high priest, the high priest had to be, had to be ritually clean. He, had no, he could not carry any shame or doubt or sin with him into the Holy of Holies or he would be struck dead. But, but here's the thing. That's not really possible, is it? We know that we can't cleanse ourselves of our own sin. We know that we can't remove our own shame from ourselves. We can't deal with our own impurity. Only Christ can do that. And so when we boldly approach the throne of grace, we're able to because Christ has already dealt with all of those things that should prohibit us, prevent us, 
from coming to God. There is nothing in your life. There is nothing in your life that can prevent God from loving you and from wanting you to draw near to Him. Not one thing. Man, I don't know what some of y'all carry in your past. I've heard some stories about some of you because it's Fairmont and it's a small town. There's nothing, nothing, nothing in your past that should cause you to approach the throne of grace with shame because Christ has already paid the price for it. You know, sometimes, sometimes when we're want to deal with a conversation that's kind of awkward and we don't really want to deal with it, we have this tendency of sort of hemming and hawing, right? We sort of beat around the bush a little bit. I'm like, well, you know, I heard maybe sort of, kind of, some people say that. You don't have to hem and haw with God. In fact, here's the thing. You can't hem and haw. With God. You can think that you're hemming and you're hawing. You can think that you are beating that bush to a pulp. But God already knows. God already knows. And so here's what we do He knows our issues, He, he knows them. But more than that, He's already dealt with them. There was a moment in time in which God the Son hung on the cross, pierced for our transgressions, and He knew everything you would ever do that would cause you shame. And yet, He still paid that price for you. It's been dealt with, brothers and sisters. And so we can be bold and direct and honest with God in a way that maybe we can't with others or even with ourselves. Because our hearts are sprinkled clean and our bodies are washed in pure water. God has done the work and He is waiting for us to draw near. And so, in verse 23, we see this. Let us hold on to the... Now here we finally see the word. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering since he who promised is faithful. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope. What is the confession of our hope? This begins to strike at that second meaning of confession that we talked about earlier. Because the confession of our hope, our hope is found in the confession that we make about Christ. As members of the body of Christ, that we only have one hope. Paul tells it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. In writing to the church 
In Rome, Paul says it this way, we have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Rick didn't know that we were going to be talking about this this morning. It's amazing how the Spirit of God can work. Christ alone is our cornerstone. The work of Christ alone grants us hope. You've heard me say before, what this community needs more than anything else is hope. You go out there, you ride around, you see a community without hope. The hope that they need, the hope that will resurrect and rebuild this community is only found in the hope that we find in Jesus Christ. I said as we began worship this morning, I said a phrase that you're going to hear me say a lot more in the coming days, that we are dedicated, that I am dedicated to this being a community, making Fairmont more like the kingdom of God by helping folks become more like Jesus. That's discipleship. Us growing in Christ-likeness. And as we grow in Christ-likeness, the kingdom of God blooms around us. That is our hope. And so we see that our two confessions are tied together. We see that we're able to confess that Jesus is Lord because we can confess our sins. That we are able to confess with our mouth And that when we do, we are acknowledging His kingship and His authority over our lives. And it is that authority that defines sin. Go out and find somebody who does not acknowledge the Lordship of Christ, the Lordship of God, and you will find someone who doesn't believe in sin. Maybe they believe in evil. Maybe they believe in being a nice person. Maybe they believe in treating each other with kindness. But they don't believe in sin. Because you can only believe in sin if you acknowledge that there is a perfect, holy, divine ruler of the universe, sovereign over everything, created everything, who sets the standard, the plumb line, for what is right and what is wrong. We confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we acknowledge His kingship and His authority over us. It is an authority that exists for all creation. Go back and read Romans 1. It's a kingship that exists for all creation. Whether whether He is acknowledged as sovereign of the universe or not, He is. And Romans 1 tells us that that His desire and His plan and His sovereignty is so manifest in creation that even those who've never heard the Gospel can see it. This is why we see some version of morality everywhere in the world. Even in cultures, emerging in cultures that had not heard of Christ. They still acknowledge that killing other people is wrong, that treating each other the way you wanted to be treated is probably not a bad idea. Because God wrote His law and His sovereignty into creation. It's Romans 1.
You know, this confession is not a one-and-done event. It's an ongoing practice that draws us into deeper relationship with Christ and into a richer measure of faith. As we become emboldened in our confession, we become more effective ambassadors for the kingdom that holds our citizenship. As we spend more time confessing to Christ our sin and confessing that Jesus is Lord, we become more effective ambassadors for that kingdom of God. We become more like Christ. We grow in our Christ-likeness and we see the community around us become more like the kingdom. More like the kingdom of God and less like the kingdom of the devil. But there's a communal aspect. These last two verses, there's a communal aspect to our confession as well. We confess that Jesus is Lord in community. Right here, verse 24 and 25. Let us not consider one another in order to, let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. When looked at from this biblical perspective, godly confession is not meant to shame us. It's not meant to make us feel bad about ourselves. It's not meant to make us want to crawl under a rock and cry. It's not intended for us to hide from one another. Rather, godly confession is meant to draw us together into the Lord and to free us of burdens that we are unable to carry or remove on our own. The beginning of chapter 8 of Romans. Therefore, there is now, what? No condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. While our first act in confession admits our sinfulness and weakness, acknowledging that Christ alone has the power to save, it does not end there. Being able to admit our personal shortcomings and struggles with other believers allow us to share in those struggles. When we confess a personal struggle or sin with a trusted friend or in a small group or to a pastor or elder, the response should not be one of judgment or condemnation because confession is a plea for help. And where necessary for discipleship and godly accountability. When the brother of Jesus, when James is writing, he writes this in chapter 5. James chapter 5 verse 16. Therefore confess your sin to one another. Doesn't end there. Keeps going. And pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Just as our confession of our sins and our need of Christ restores our relationship with God, the Father, confession has the power to restore broken relationships within the body of Christ. When one believer wrongs another and truly repents of their wrongdoing, the believer who was wrong ought to forgive to release the right of judgment as Christ has forgiven us. We prayed that this morning, didn't we? Forgive us our trespasses, our sins, as what? We forgive those who trespassed, who sinned against us. 
Brothers and sisters, we have been forgiven of much. And what we are asked is to forgive much. Even if the former level of trust and friendship is unable to be fully restored, and I understand that there are betrayals and there are sins that prohibit us, that will prevent us for a lifetime from being able to fully restore trust and friendship. Both parties are released to begin a healing process. When confession and forgiveness is withheld, both parties will struggle to move forward in their individual spiritual walks, which will in turn affect their ministry within the church, among their community, and in their homes. Look at the number of homes that are wrecked, that are wrecked because somebody in the home is carrying trauma from before that time that household was established. And it's never dealt with, and it's never released, and healing never occurs, and that home and that family ends up being torn apart. Now, to be very clear, this is not a call to persist in rebellion against God. This is not a call to say that that because we are forgiven and because we should forgive, that that should allow us to continue to do whatever we want. Rather, we are called to pursue Christ and to grow in grace. But, but how do we do that? Because life is hard. Life is hard. And I'm looking out here and I'm just thinking of some of the stories that I know and people that I see. Some of you have had some really crappy couple of years. Some of you have had, had, had some time recently that's more than a couple of years that's been really hard. Man, life, <laughs> life can hit you like a freight train. And so how do we pursue Christ? How do we grow in grace? It's in community in the local church. That's, that's what the local church is for. Brothers and sisters, this is not a social club. This is not a country club. This is not a mutual admiration society, a place to get together and re- revel in each other's respectability. This is a place to be honest about who we are. This is a front-line mash unit for the broken and the hurting and the wounded. Because here's the truth. We are all unrespectable wretches in need of a perfect and holy God to lift us out of the muck and the mire. There are too many people There are too many people in the church who would rather worship at the altar of respectability than at the altar of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. There are too many people in the church, the church universal, and dare I say it, perhaps a local congregation. There are too many people who would prefer to worship at the altar of respectability than at the altar of Jesus Christ.
A vibrant, biblically-based, loving church is a critical tool that can steer us away from disobedience and sin. Believers who are not a functioning part of a local church are living outside of the will of God and limiting God's work in their lives. This means that those who are not confessing their sins and their troubles, their pains and their concerns, their doubts, fears, and shortcomings, this is the last place in the world where you should feel like you have to perform the respectability dance, and yet this is the place where all too often we dance that dance the hardest. There are many ways that we can neglect to gather together. The most obvious is not being here physically. This has been hard over the last year and a half, and there are folks I know who are at home who are faithful members of this congregation and who have gathered with us every week online. So there, there are different ways that we can neglect. We cannot be here physically. But you can be here in the room, and if you aren't honest and open and vulnerable with your brothers and sisters in Christ, then you are not gathered with the body. You are avoiding the means that God has given us to get help and consolation. We need one another to lift each other up. Let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works. Life is hard enough, brothers and sisters. It's hard enough to be a Christ follower in this broken and fallen world. So why in the world would we cut ourselves off from the loving support of our family of faith? Confession, like baptism and communion, proclaims the glory of God and the transformative power of Christ's death and resurrection. It's also a tool that enables us to declare the work that God is doing in our lives and to rid us of the things that are hindering our spiritual growth. Rather than something to be feared and dreaded, something to be avoided and and, and ignored, confession ought to be seen as an invitation to lay down our burdens and draw close together in community and in purpose. Confession frees us to once again engage in full relationship with God, that vertical relationship, and with others, that horizontal relationship. And so my invitation to you this morning is to confess. Confess to God. Confess to one another. If you are struggling with something, I would encourage you this morning before you leave here to grab someone that you trust, to sit down with them, to confess with them, to be open and honest and vulnerable with them and ask them to pray with you. And then ask how you can do the same for them. Lift one another up. Hey, here's an idea. Cross to the other side of the room to a person that you have sinned against and confess to them and ask them for their forgiveness. Or find that person who has wronged you and offer forgiveness. Or maybe you need, for the very first time, maybe you need to confess to God your sin and acknowledge the truth that He is Lord of all, including your life, and you want to come forward and confess that, that He is Lord, and make a profession of faith publicly for the very first time. We are invited every week. We have a hymn of invitation. 
This is your invitation to confess. To rely on one another. To put down the sin of pride and respectability and lift up the cross of Christ. And confess. To confess. And as, he conf- as we confess, He will set our soul afire. And that is our hymn of invitation. Hymn number 573. Set my soul afire.